You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Is it a blessing to have a talent like Debbie right here in our midst? Come in the last minute when the preacher pulls something stupid on her. It's like a last minute song. She's just able to jump right in there and, and get with it. I appreciate it, Debbie. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. This week, with the Brother Braswell gone, was somewhat of a consuming week on the building. And by about Tuesday or Wednesday, when I had not had an opportunity to crack a book yet in preparation for Sunday, which Monday morning, that's usually the first thing that I do is start studying. I began to realize that if things continue to go during the week the way they were, I spent all day Monday at the building uh, working some things out, um, then I wasn't going to have anything to say this morning that at least had been prepared. And so I said, Lord, okay, you're sovereign over this week. And you know the things I've got to get done this week in Bobby's absence. And you know that I've got to study long and hard to prepare to preach God's Word as the Gospel of John. So, Lord, since I'm not going to have time to do both of them, you're going to have to alleviate one of them. He didn't alleviate the building problem, so I figured that he had something else he wanted me to say. And so I did what in preacher parlance is called dusting one off. (laughs) You know what that means? It means the passage that I have put the many hours of study into in the past and have preached before, and so I kind of dusted one off, okay, out of Acts chapter 17. Forgive me for doing that. Periodically, I do that. I feel like it was uh, the Lord's hand was in it because I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, okay, which one you want me to start dusting on uh, this week to preach this? I did. I really and truly believed that God was going to guide me to one, and I, I felt like that he did out of the 17th chapter of Acts, and dusting off for me means not just pulling the file folder out and preaching it as it was, but it's rewriting the thing, and I did this week, and in the process of that, the Lord showed me some new things and some old things. I decided that wasn't so stupid after all. I think I'll say that one again, uh, and, you know, some new applications and things, uh, but when we preached through the, the book of Acts, uh, we studied this particular passage, and basic same outline, some of the meat that the Lord gave me this week is a little different than it was before, but you don't remember the meat anyway. Um, most of you just remember that we preached through the book of Acts. Some of you don't even remember that, so I shouldn't even told you it was a dusted off sermon. You wouldn't have even known the difference if I hadn't told you that. Acts chapter 17. Let's read together verses 1 through. Let's stop with verse 9. Actually, we're going to cover through 15, but let's stop with verse 9. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking a along with them some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. 
And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. I've been saved now 20 years. In fact, I just celebrated my 20th anniversary, the night that the young people were having the New Year's Eve bash for all of the churches in this particular area because I was saved on New Year's Eve, 1971, bringing in 1972, almost at midnight. I can remember the, very, the setting. I can remember the very moment. But I can also remember something else because, you see, the Lord where he saved me from was a life of really nothing and gave me a, a, a sense of meaning and a purpose really for the first time in my life as a 17-year-old, having been a dropout and all of the things that, that I was, when the Lord saved me, he began to give me a sense of purpose and of meaning for life. And I can remember from the very first days that I came to know the Lord Jesus and began to sense this tremendous change that was coming about from being born again, I had a strong desire for my life to count for something. Now, by that, I don't mean that from the very beginning, I believe that I was somehow going to change the world. There have been a lot of people that have done that. Many people who have set their sights to do so, and God is blessed, and they've done that. Others who really didn't set their sights to do so, but just in the sovereignty of God, he chose them out for a particular time and a particular purpose, and something that they did or something they achieved literally changed the world. But I never really have set my sights that high. Not to change the world. I just always wanted to change my world. My world is big enough. God has appointed certain individuals that, that will do certain things, that will literally change the world. But really and truly, all I've ever wanted to do is for my life to count for something and to make a difference in my world. And what I mean by my world is, for instance, my children. If I can make a difference in that world, if I can make a difference in their world as they're growing up, then that means something. My family my church, my community, you know, my world. If, if somehow in God's sovereignty and in his grace and his mercy, he can allow this young man, and I still am, getting grayer by the moment, and I've got every one of them named, but if God in his mercy and his grace can by some means allow me to change my world, then my life will be, have been fulfilled. Let me ask you a question. Do you desire to change your world? Again, I'm not saying change the world, although some of you could. Some of your children may do it. Most of them, I doubt it. <laughs> some of them could. I'm just kidding. But do you have a desire to change your world? I'm not talking about finding a cure for cancer or being the first one to walk on Mars. If Jesus tarries, I believe someone's going to do both of those things. Probably not the same person. But if the Lord Jesus tarries long, I believe someone will find a cure for cancer and literally will change the world. If the Lord Jesus tarries, there probably will be a day and a time when some man or some woman will walk 
on the face of Mars and will literally change the world. But I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about making a difference in your world where you live every day. It requires hard work, but you can. It can happen. But if you do, if you make a difference in your world, if this church makes a difference in our world, and I mean by that our community, if we make a difference, there are some things that are going to be required. And there are things that I think are very clearly illustrated in the life of the Apostle Paul, who definitely made an impact not only on his world, but he literally made an impact on the world. He was one of those people that God had sovereignly chosen to have that kind of impact. But the reason that Paul did was because God had emplaced in him certain qualities. And those qualities had become such a part of Paul's life that as he moved everywhere he went, everything that he said, it was everything he did was tinted by those qualities of life that the Lord Jesus had planted in his heart. They seem to be characteristics of virtually every person that I've ever studied in history that has really made much of a difference in the world or their world. It's in Acts chapter 17. The apostle is on his second missionary journey. Previously, he's been thrown in jail in, in the city of Philippi for the preaching of the gospel. He's been beaten, he is bloodied, and he is bound in prison. And then God performs a miracle. He sets the laws of science aside, the laws of nature aside, as Paul is in there bound and broken and bleeding and is praising the Lord, singing hymns, he and Silas, and God causes a great earthquake to come and the walls of the, of the, of the jail just come tumbling down. And later when Paul is released from the walls coming down of the jail, he goes, the scripture says, to the house of Lydia, and there in the home of Lydia is the church, the small little church in Philippi are meeting in the home of Lydia. And the scripture says that Paul there encourages the brethren, and then he leaves. The key verse, I think, in this entire passage is verse 6. It comes and it says, And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Paul encourages the brethren in Lydia's house, and then the scripture says he goes on from that place. And we pick up at that point in chapter 17. Now, the Apostle Paul was a man who made a difference. What were the characteristics, what were the qualities of this man's life that caused him to make a difference? I'll guarantee you, if I am able to make a difference in my world, in my children, in my family, with my wife, in my church, in my community, in my neighborhood, my little small world, and that's as high as my sights go, quite frankly. And it'll have to be the Lord God that'll change that for my sights to go any higher than that. If I just make a difference in my world, it's going to require some of these things. If you make a difference in your world, it's going to require these characteristics of Paul's life. I want to share them with you this morning. The Lord showed me this several years ago. It's good stuff. It was good then. It's good now. So I'm going to give it to you again. First of all is determination determination. Verse 1 tells us that when Paul left Lydia's home and left Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, which was about 100 miles away. Quite a little trek for a, an old boy on camelback or walking, however he got there. 
But he went to Thessalonica because, you see, Thessalonica was a very strategic city in the ancient world. It was a place from which the spread of the gospel could happen very easily. It was a place of commerce. It was a place that had good road system. The Roman road system went through the city of Thessalonica. And so Paul had a desire to go to that strategic city and preach the gospel with the indication that the gospel would spread quickly from that city. And when he got to Thessalonica, where did he go? Verse 2 tells us that he went immediately, as was his custom, into the synagogue, the place of worship of the Jews. Now, Paul always went to the synagogue, and what always happened when Paul went to the synagogue? What always happened? Somebody? He got booted out, didn't he? He wasn't a very good house guest in the synagogue. They didn't take very, to, very likely to him in the synagogue. He always went to the synagogue, but he always got kicked out. He always got persecuted in the synagogue. Very quickly, let me just remind you a few times. In chapter 9, immediately after the Lord had appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, later in that chapter, it says that Paul went into Damascus and he went to the synagogue and they plotted to kill him. That was his first indication that this following Jesus stuff isn't going to be uh, just a bed of roses. They plotted to kill him in chapter 9. Chapter 13, he's on the island of Paphos. He goes into the synagogue, and he is immediately driven out of the synagogue when he preaches Christ, the risen Savior. Chapter 14, verse 1, Paul is in the synagogue in the city of Iconium, and there they didn't just kick him out, but they stoned him. Wanting to take his life, he went to Derby from there, and there again he was stoned again. The bruises still hadn't healed from Iconium, and he's in Derby, and he's going to the synagogue again, and again they raise a riot, they stoned the man, they dragged him outside of the city and left him for dead. But God raised him up. And what did Paul do? Did Paul dust the, the, the dust off of his feet and go to the next city? No, this idiot turned right around and he went right back into the town. I'd say idiot lightly. Do you understand what I mean? Don't want to be irreverent. He goes right back into the town, right back to the synagogue, and he preaches Jesus Christ again in that place where they just stoned him. Chapter 16, Paul is arrested in Philippi, as I said a moment ago, and he's thrown into prison. And then in chapter 17, he's in Thessalonica, and what does he do? He goes immediately back to the synagogue and preaches Jesus in the synagogue. I would say that this was a man whose life was characterized by determination. This man would not quit. He was going to do what God had called him to do, and nothing they did, stones or even a cross to be crucified upon, was going to keep Paul or was going to deter him from doing what God had called him to do. He was determined to keep on keeping on. You know what? Quitters never make a difference. I think I can probably say that with full confidence that you'll never find an example that denies that. Quitters never make a difference. I'm intrigued by the great men and women of history. I don't know as much, don't have the time to read as much as I would like to about them, but in the times that I have, I've discovered some interesting things. Winston Churchill is a guy that's always fascinated me, and I'm intrigued by him. I'm intrigued by many things that the people of, ignorant, uh, of England, that was a brought-in slip, the people of England would be ignorant enough to not re-elect the man after he had led them through the Second World War. And it was the economy, by the way, that got him. Uh, same thing's going to probably get George Bush. 
but that's another story. Anyway, Winston Churchill, in his memoirs, tells of a story at a time when he was invited to speak at his old alma mater, his boyhood school. He went to an all-boys preparatory school. He was 75 years old by this time, retired from politics, and the headmaster had told the boys to come with a pen and a piece of paper ready to take notes because they were going to hear that day from a true statesman, a graduate of their own school, and all the boys were there prepared. The schoolmaster introduced Winston Churchill, gave him a flowered introduction, and Churchill stood, and everybody was expecting to hear a tremendously inspiring speech, and Churchill records the words of that speech, the smartest speech that he ever spoke in his life, and he simply said this, never give up. Never, never, never give up. And then he slept down. Noah Webster researched and wrote on what we now have as the Webster's Dictionary for 36 years it took him to complete that volume. Ernest Mingway, it is said, rewrote the final copy of The Old Man in the Sea some 80 times. Leonardo da Vinci. Not a very good biblical historian, as I told you last week, but a tremendous talent artistically. And his picture of the Last Supper worked for 10 years to complete that work of art. Field crossed the Atlantic Ocean 50 times in preparation for laying the first transatlantic cable. Edison traveled around the world for 13 months looking for the correct element that would be the filament for the first light bulb. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way. He said, it was by perseverance that the sail entered the ark. <laughs> I like that. It was by perseverance that the snail entered the ark. In other words, he hung in there. And when there's a flood coming, folks, you got to hang in there, don't you? And by perseverance, he made it to the ark. He couldn't afford to quit. He had to keep on going. You want to know how to make a difference in your world? Don't be a quitter. Don't give up. Determine yourself to keep on keeping on. You want to make a difference in your family? Men, women, mothers, husbands, wives? You want to make a difference in your family? Then don't quit. Don't quit on your family. And I'm not just talking about divorce. That's only one way of quitting. You can quit by withdrawal. Don't quit. Are your children difficult? Then don't quit. Is your wife difficult? Well, I got one too. She ain't difficult though. I'm the difficult one in our house, and she hadn't quit, praise the Lord. Don't quit. You want to make a difference in your family? Then don't quit. You want to make a difference in your workplace? Then don't quit praying. Don't quit living. Don't quit sharing. Don't quit. And somewhere down the road, some way down the road, your life will have counted for something in the workplace. You want to make a difference in your church? Then don't quit. Quitting is easy. There are so many times in the past eight years that it would have been so easy for me to quit, and I wanted to quit, and God wouldn't let me. There have been that many times, at least in many of your lives, that have been the same road with me, that you wanted to quit. I know you did. You told me you did, and God didn't allow you to quit. Praise God you didn't because of that. 
Your life will make a difference in this church, and it is, and it will continue to. You want to make a difference? Then don't quit. Quitters never make a difference. Quitters never make a difference. Is your church not doing some things that you think it ought to be doing? Well, if you're a member of this one, that's probably true. <laughs> We're not doing a whole lot of things that we ought to be doing. But why don't you determine yourself rather than quitting to become a part of the solution, not a part of the problem? Are there some folks around you that are not doing the things that you think and that probably is true that they should be doing? Then don't quit on them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Lift them up. Don't criticize them. Don't judge them. Don't beat them down. Don't quit. And make a difference in your world. Encourage them and pray for them. I can stand a lot of things, and people can say a lot of things about me. They're not good. I know that. I can stand it if people, when I pass away from this earth, if they say, you know, he wasn't the greatest preacher in the world. Well, that doesn't bother me because I know it's true. I do the best with what God has given me as God is my witness, but that's okay. They may say he's not the greatest administrator. I tell you, let me guarantee you, I know that was not true. I mean, I know that was true. <laughs> I ain't the greatest administrator. I don't even like to administrate. They may even say he wasn't the greatest pastor, and I know that's true too. They can say all of those things, but and I can stand those things. I can live with those things. But there are two things I cannot stand and I could never live with if they said he was lazy or he was a quitter. Those are the two things I think that are the greatest indictments that can be leveled against a child of God. From this end to that end, he was lazy or he was a quitter. Two things I hope and pray to God people can never say about me is that he was lazy and that he was a quitter. I'm going to make it to the end. As God is my witness, praying that the Lord will allow my life to make a difference in my world. Because I know and I'm convinced that quitters never make a difference. There's a second characteristic of Paul's life is debt. Not only was a determination, this is a determined man, but he was a deep, deep man, debt. It says in verses three and four that for three days, Paul did three things. He reasoned and he explained and he gave evidence in the synagogue that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to what it says. It says he reasoned, he explained, and he gave evidence. Now, I'm impressed by the fact that when Paul went into the synagogue, he didn't just have a canned presentation that he presented in every synagogue. The indication here that he explained, he reasoned, and he gave evidence is that the apostles spent time going in depth, if you will, in the scriptures and answering their questions. They had a question about this or about that. Paul was a man that would spend time in answering their questions. Now listen, folks, if we're going to make a difference in our world, and again, by, by that, I sh I'm, I'm going to quit clarifying this before the message is over with. I'm talking about your world, your home, your church, your community, your friendship, your workplace. If you're going to make a difference, if we're going to make a difference in our world, then we're going to have to be not only willing, but we are going to have to be prepared to give answers. The world out there is not going to be very impressed with your faith or mine if you cannot answer their questions of life. 
from the Word of God. They are going to say, your faith must not mean just a whole lot to you if you cannot even give answers from the book that you profess to believe to my life's questions. You get that? Paul's method reflects three things that should be a goal of every teacher, should be a goal of every preacher, should be a goal of every child of God. In fact, I have adopted this through the years as my goal for what I want to accomplish as a preacher. Three things. First of all, I want to be accurate. It says that Paul reasoned. I want to be accurate. And the word accurate means to rightly divide. I've had people through the years say, well, James, why do you spend so much time studying? And super pious people have said this, why don't you just stand in the pulpit, open the Bible, and let the Holy Spirit speak? Well, the reason I spend so much time studying because I am under command to study. God has commanded me to do so. He has commanded every single one of us. He says, be diligent to present yourself, study to present yourself approved of God, a workman that need not be ashamed. I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit uses a prepared mind. Certainly he can speak without study. But I think ultimately the reason for that is laziness. I believe that the, that the Holy Spirit most often uses a prepared mind. And so I want to be accurate. Second of all is clarity. Not only accuracy, but clarity. In other words, I want to be able as a preacher, as a teacher, to make the Word of God understandable. I think it's a crime that is committed in classrooms and pulpits around the world every single Sunday because somebody is more impressed with their own knowledge or their own oratorical ability than they are impressed with getting the Word of God clearly across and accurately across. And so the Word of God becomes non-understandable. I think it's the greatest crime we can commit to not make the Word of God understandable to people. Clarity. Thirdly, practicality. We got accuracy, we got clarity, we got practicality. In other words, to make it down to life. How in the world does this thing apply? Most people, we talked about this last week in teachers' meeting, Wednesday night. Most people, really what they want to know is not who the third king of the northern kingdom of Israel was in 600-something B.C. or whatever. They want to know how in the world am I going to get to tomorrow? Now, if who the third king of the northern kingdom of Israel somehow relates to how they're going to get through tomorrow, and if it helps them understand that, then that's important. But if, they, if it doesn't, they're not really here to hear that. They want to know, tell me something from God's word, how in the world I'm going to live tomorrow. And that is the task of every child of God, not just the preacher and the teacher. It's the task of every single one of us to be prepared, to be accurate, to be clear, but to be practical as we go out there in the world and are answering questions. They want to know, what is Jesus going to do to make a difference in my life? And we have to be prepared to do it. That's what Paul did. Quickly, look, verse 2, it says he reasoned. In other words, it literally means to pick and choose. That's what the word reason, the original language means. It means to pick and choose. Now, what did Paul do? Well, he didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He had the Old Testament. It's all he had. 
And he was such a student of the word that he went through the Old Testament as he went into every synagogue and Paul was able to pick and choose the scriptures out of the Old Testament that were pertinent to, pertinent to that particular situation. He reasoned from the scriptures. He knew them well enough. Not only that, but it says that he explained. Again, the word explain means to make clear, to put it in terms that they could understand. You know, these guys, these Jewish boys in the synagogue, you know, they're not too up on all this Christian stuff because they're looking for a completely different type of Messiah. And so Paul, he walks in, and he says, well, he sur surmises the situation, and he says, well, there are, there's some passages that come to mind that just seem like they're going to apply right here in this place. And so he accentuates those passages, and then they ask questions, and Paul begins then to explain those. He says, now, guys, this passage in Isaiah, I don't know it's bothered you for a long time. Let me explain to you what this passage in Isaiah really means and how it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's explaining, he's reasoning. Thirdly, he's giving evidence. He's taking that scripture and he's practically applying it. And he's saying, now look, this is how this passage of scripture lays right alongside of the life of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the word give evidence in the original language means to lay alongside of. He's taking the word of God and he says, now this is what the scripture says about the Messiah. Now here's the life of Jesus. And he takes that and he just lays that right alongside of the life of Jesus. And the apostle Paul made a difference in his world. What a strategy. Now here's the kicker. There's always a kicker. There's always a catch. Okay, pastor, where's the catch? Here's the catch. To be able to do what Paul did, to be able to reason, to be able to explain, to be able to give evidence, what does it require? It requires depth. That's it. I'm sorry. There's no easy way to get there. There's no easy road to get there. It requires depth. It requires a maturity in the Word. It re requires a devotion to the study of the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Did you hear that? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and always, he says, be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Folks, that's, a lot of us just can't do that, can we? Are you able, as you go through your daily life, because you have devoted your life to a study of the Word of God, not just, like I said, the historical and all of that kind of stuff. That's important stuff for understanding and interpreting the Scripture. But the nuts and bolts of the Word of God, to have that at the, at the tip of your, your fingertips, to have that at the tip of your mind and the tip of your tongue, so that when that pagan out there or that family member out there that's been watching your life, they say, well, how does Jesus relate to this? Well, you can then go, well, I can tell you how Jesus relates to this, man. I got, I got a word for you right here. How many of us can do that? Or when that person in the workplace or that family member or, or whoever, that friend, when they say, well, tell me why in your lives. How many of us are really prepared to do what Peter tells us to do? to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. That's not just for preachers and teachers. That's for the people of God. Paul was a man of determination, but folks, he was a man of depth, and he could have gone out into that world with all of the determination in the world, and if he could not pick and choose the Scripture, 
and explain it and apply it, he would have made no difference in the ancient world. I don't want to embarrass her, so I'm not going to tell her name, but this last week I had someone who came to my office and made an astounding request. In fact, I can't remember maybe two or three times in all of my preaching ministry where somebody has done this. Made an astounding request. She said, you preached a sermon about a month ago on a certain passage of Scripture. She had the passage, had the verse in the Gospel of John, in the passage on the raising of Lazarus. And she said, this week I was going through my notes, rewriting my notes of the sermon. And I realized that I had missed a particular point of interpretation on this one verse, and I'd like for you to give that to me again. <laughs> I went, man, that's scary when, you know, when somebody a month later walks in your office and not only were they there, but they remembered it and they had taken notes on it and they wanted you to read it. I mean, I've slept since then, you know. And so we spent some time, you know, we spent some time talking about it and, and you know, rewrote her notes. And when she left, I thought, my soul, what a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful testimony. You know what's going to happen with her and others? There may not be anybody else. Let me say, you know what's going to happen to her? Is one of these days, after years of doing that in Bible study class, after years of doing that in, in the preaching of the sermons, and periodically I might say something that's worth writing down and remembering, do you know what's going to happen to her after years of that, of going back and then studying it and going into the Word on her own using those notes? One of these days, somebody's going to come up to her and they're going to ask her a question right out of left field. She goes, oh, that's easy. That's a piece of cake. I got it right here. And she is going to be able to give an account for the hope that is in her. She'll never have to say, perhaps. But if she does have to say, I have no idea, at least it won't be because she has not committed herself to be a student of the Word. But perhaps she will not have to say in that situation, I don't have the foggiest idea. And hear that unbeliever say, well, you're supposed to. And walk away and say, your faith must not mean just a whole lot to you. Now, folks, I, I, I guess that sounds harsh, but I want to tell you that's where we are. Let me make a practical suggestion, a real practical suggestion. Every child of God, under the hearing of my voice, ought to have at least two spiral notebooks in your possession when you walk in the doors of this place. Now, every single one of you, but maybe one or two of you are under indictment right now. Okay? I mean, I realize that. But I want to say to you, you ought to have two spiral notebooks. You ought to have one for Sunday school. You ought to have one for the sermon. And you ought to write down as much as you can as those teachers in your classes who have studied all week long, as Alan has prepared, the teachers have studied, and they've come there under the unction of the Holy Spirit to teach you. You ought to have that pen ready to write something down so that you can go back that week and go into it and study. You ought to walk into this place Whenever I say turn to Acts chapter 17, you ought to turn to Acts chapter 17, and then you ought to turn to the date and the page in that spiral notebook and say, okay, Lord, teach me. Not James, teach me. Lord, teach me. You see, what you hear is gone in a couple of hours. What you write down, you have for life. What you hear is gone 
just like that. But what you write down, you have for the rest of your life. Not only for the rest of your life, you have it for tomorrow. <laughs> and tomorrow is what you're interested in, isn't it? Tomorrow is what you're interested in. You have it that week in your, in your Sunday school class, what was taught that week. You have it for that week to go back and do your own personal Bible study. Many people say, I don't know how to study the Bible. Well, just take notes. At the, own, the level that you're able to take notes and then go back into the Word and say, Lord, teach me something out of this that he didn't even say. And I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will do it. And someday, someone will come to you and they will say, what about this? And you'll be able to say, that's easy. Here it is. And you'll make a difference. You see, you don't make a difference in people's lives when you're not able to give answers. You don't make a difference in their life. And if you as an individual are going to make a difference, you've got to be prepared not to just shoot right off the top of your head and shoot from the hip and make a statement that you don't know is really true or not, but you know they for sure don't know if it's true or not, so you give it to them anyway. You know? <laughs> Well, I, this is probably off the wall, but I'm not about to say I don't understand it. So you go into some long dissertation of garbage, and they listen to that, and they go, well, it may be true, but it doesn't relate to me. But when you can give the truth, folks, the truth has a power of its own. I love what D.L. Moody used to say. So you don't have to defend the word. All you got to do is just turn him loose, and he'll defend himself, just like a lion. You don't have to defend the word. Just turn the word loose. If you can turn the word loose, it'll defend itself. Determination, depth, and I'll close with this, difficulty. Paul was a man that faced difficulty virtually every day of his Christian life. It seems to be a characteristic of people who make a difference that they face difficulty. That's encouraging to us as a church, isn't it? That is encouraging, isn't it? Let's say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We face our share of difficulty. I hope and pray to God that that means that we're about to make a difference. But people that make a difference are people that face difficulty. Verse 4, it says, many believed, Jews, God-fearers, leading women. I'm going to skip through a bunch of stuff. But with that success in Thessalonica came, as it always did, difficulty. Verse 5 through 9, we'll not take time to read them. But verses 5 through 9 says that the Jews in Thessalonica didn't like Paul any more than the other Jews in the other synagogues, and so they began to get together a, a former riot. It's interesting and intriguing how they went about it. I think it's verse 5 that tells us that they went to the square to get wicked men. <laughs> a word wicked men that's translated there means basically the slobs of the community. That's my transliteration of that word in the original language. It means... Basically, the slobs of the community. In other words, the kind of guys that hang around the city square are the local pool hall. <laughs> and some of you used to hang around the local pool hall, so you know what I'm talking about. In other words, they got this mob together of wicked men, of men of ill repute, if you will, men of low character. And they're going to incite them into a riot in order to get Paul. Well, they went to a guy's house by the name of Jason, where Paul was supposed to be staying. Paul wasn't there. Since Paul wasn't there, they took Jason into custody. And they were beating on him a little while, and then they got a pledge out of him. The Scripture doesn't say what the pledge is. Scholars have argued over it. Perhaps it means, probably it means that they got a pledge out of Jason. If they let him go, he would see to it that Paul got out of town. And Jason gave that pledge, and when Paul found out about it, Paul felt obligated to honor the pledge that Jason had give, given, 
So Paul left town. He left Thessalonica, it tells us. Verse 10, it says he went to Berea and he went to synagogue. Had great results there. But the Thessalonican Jews, they followed him to Berea. They started up another crowd to run him out of town and he wound up going to Athens. Wherever Paul went, he faced difficulty. Every place that Paul went, where he preached the gospel, where he lived, he did it in the face of opposition and conflict. I believe that if you make a difference, you will certainly upset the status quo. And if you upset the status quo, people will oppose you. Systems will oppose you. Traditions will oppose you. But I'm encouraged by the fact that you're in good company. The Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the 12 apostles themselves, the first century church, made a difference. And they did it in the face of opposition from day one. You want to make a difference? You want your church to make a difference? Here it is. Study it. Determination. Don't quit. I have watched quitters all of my ministry. And they make no difference. Sticking with it's tougher, sure. Quitting is easy. Sticking with it's tough. But you make a difference. Determination. Depth. Depth. To walk on the surface all of your life. Do what it takes. I've given you a practical suggestion this morning. Man, if you didn't get anything else out of this message, if you will do what I've asked you to do this morning, if you show up in this place next week in your Sunday school class and you sit down and you open that notebook and and the Word of God, you say, okay, Holy Spirit, teach me today. I'm not above being taught. Some of you think you are, but you're not. The Holy Spirit will teach you. He will give you answers to give to others. And difficulty, just face it, accept it. It's a part of the life that Jesus has called us to, to face difficulty. This morning, as I was getting ready, the little television in the kitchen was on by the coffee maker, and I was slobbing some coffee down, and Robert Schiller was on. You know, Robert's never been my favorite preacher. I've never listened to him. I know some of you like him, and that's fine. He has some good things to say. But I've never been a great fan of Robert Schuler. But the TV was on, and he was there. So as I was putting the sugar and the creamer in my coffee, I was in there listening to him. And he was in, he was in a very honest, low-key mood this morning. And he made a statement that, that stuck out in my mind. That's why I even mentioned it this morning. His statement was this. He said, if you do the best that you possibly can with what you've been given, what will people say about you? And then this was his He said, they will say, you made a difference. I like that. If you do the best you possibly can with what you've been given. We don't have any Madame Curies here this morning. Great scientific minds. We don't have any brain surgeons that are going to come up with some new technique. Your children may be that, but none of you, none of us. I will give your children their due. But if you do the best you can with what God has given you, what will people say about you? 
they will say, you made a difference. The Reformed churches in Europe, when they made the decision to upset the status quo and to rebel against the abuses of the established church, took as their motto and as their scriptural flag, if you will, a part of a verse out of Exodus chapter 3 of Moses' experience at the burning bush. This was it. Nevertheless, it was not consumed. People of determination, people of depth, the reformers were. People who were able to face difficulty took as their scriptural flag. Nevertheless, it was not consumed. You want to make a difference in your world, your little world? There it is. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you have called us for a purpose, or we would not even be here today. You have a purpose for us individually and collectively as a body. We want to be people, Lord, that uh, make a difference. Beginning at home, workplace, but collectively, Lord, our cry to you is to show us how to make a difference in our world here, our Jerusalem, perhaps our Judea. God, we ask you to release from the four corners of this community and this world people into this body who are appointed to this time and this place because we're not quitters, people of depth, determination, people who are willing to fight the fight, to be different in the face of the all-consuming sameness around us. Paul. Lord, we ask you to call out this morning some people who need to know Jesus as Savior. People who have listened this morning and have questions. I pray that you would draw them to yourself to faith in Christ. Add unto this fellowship, Lord, people that you have appointed for this place. Send them, Lord, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. That is the invitation. Let's stand together.